0: This is Dr. Marty Freed,
1: Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and Dr. Kate Lawrence.
0: This is the Core I Am 5 Pearls podcast, brought to you by Clinical Correlations.
1: Bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls.
0: Today, we are talking about unhealthy alcohol use in the primary care setting.
1: So before we get started... We wanted to just say Core IM has been an incredible process, but to continue producing high quality stuff, we need a little bit more help behind the scenes. So if you have talents other than medicine, such as being social media savvy, particularly Instagram, Twitter, background research, script writing, graphics, web design, we'd love to hear from you.
0: So if you're picking up what we're putting down, please Marty, email at us,
1: joke.
0: <laughs> coreimpodcast at gmail.com. We are super excited to expand our team.
1: Right. So with that being said, unhealthy alcohol use is a large and important topic. So we want to break this down into two segments. The first one today, we're going to set the stage, go over some important definitions, screening, health implications. And the second one is going to be dedicated entirely to treatment.
0: Today, we're joined by Dr. Kate Lawrence, third-year internal medicine resident extraordinaire at NYU Mm -hmm. in the primary care program. So great to have you here with us, Kate.
1: Yeah, thank you guys so much. It's really exciting to be here. And special thank you to Dr. John Martin from NYU Brooklyn Family Health Centers and Dr. Dan Schatz, an addiction medicine fellow at Bellevue Hospital, for reviewing the script, as well as Dr. Jennifer McNeely for peer-reviewing this podcast. We'll have her join us at the end of the podcast to do our recap.
0: All right, let's get started on the pearls we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions.
1: Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains.
0: Pearl one, terms and definitions.
1: What does alcohol use disorder mean? And how is it different from unhealthy alcohol use?
0: Pearl two, screening for unhealthy alcohol use.
1: Who should we be screening for unhealthy alcohol use? And what are the screening tools that are preferred?
0: Pearl three, health implications of alcohol use.
1: What are the consequences of unhealthy alcohol use?
0: Pearl four, benefits of alcohol use.
1: Can moderate alcohol use be good for patients? And if so, how much is moderate?
0: And Pearl five, a throwback pearl from episode eight on chronic hep B virus infection.
1: All right, so who, how, and how often should we be screening for hepatocellular carcinoma in patients with chronic hepatitis B?
0: Guys, I am so happy that we are finally getting a chance to address alcohol use in the primary care setting.
1: Right, so many of our trainees' first experience with alcohol is in the inpatient side with patients who are experiencing withdrawal or a whole host of other inpatient issues.
0: And the part I take great umbrage with is that... (laughs)
1: What? Umbrage?
0: Listen, I take umbrage. Okay. (laughs) It's that so many people just write E-T-O-H abuse in the problem list and then just totally forget about it.
2: Yeah, Marty, I'm really glad you brought up the word umbrage, but I'm also really glad that you brought up the term (laughs) alcohol abuse, uh, because I feel like alcohol abuse or quote unquote E-T-O-H abuse is something I see written all over people's charts, and it's just such a junk term. That not only isn't helpful, but even worse, is actually pretty stigmatizing, especially for patients who are honestly just looking for help managing their drinking.
0: I think the only term I dislike more than alcohol abuse is that the patient is a, quote, poor historian, unquote. But I think I'll save that diatribe for another podcast.
2: (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Marty.
0: (laughs) All right, Kate. So alcohol abuse is out. What term should we be using?
2: So I like the term unhealthy alcohol use, which is what most organizations are moving towards in their definitions. It's a catch-all phrase, but it's meant to describe a spectrum of drinking ranging from risky use all the way to alcohol use disorder.
0: Unhealthy alcohol use and alcohol use disorder. All right, I can get on board with that. So no more alcohol abuse.
1: Okay, so if I'm thinking about unhealthy alcohol use as a spectrum, and that spectrum starts with risky use. At what amount of drinks should we start worrying about our patients having risky drinking? So it's a good question, Shreya. The generally
2: accepted understanding of risky or unhealthy drinking is actually any amount of drinking behavior that has negative health or social outcomes.
0: Okay, so risky behavior could be the college freshman weekend binge drinker, or it could be the daily six-pack of beer drinker.
2: Yeah, Exactly. Alcohol use disorder, on the other hand, which in the new DSM-5 replaced the terms alcohol abuse and dependence, is characterized more specifically by a problematic pattern of alcohol use leading to clinically significant impairment, um, which is manifested by psychosocial, behavioral,
1: or physiologic features. Ugh, oh, that DSM-5 definition is kind of a mouthful, but I get the gist. So basically, alcohol use disorder is drinking that leads to a significant impact on one's life, affecting their relationships, occupation, their health, and other parts of their life. Exactly. So for me, after I have
2: identified unhealthy alcohol use in a patient, and we'll talk about screening in a second, I
0: rely on open-ended questioning. So for example tell me how alcohol is affecting your life.
2: Right. To determine how alcohol use is affecting their life. And the answers can
1: be very enlightening, both for me and my patients. Yeah. Okay. I love those open-ended questions, but honestly, sometimes it's unclear if they meet criteria for those definitions, even after asking all these questions.
0: Yeah. I would actually love a hard number of drinks, but Perhaps I'm just uh, sipping on the wrong juice over here. Oh, God. (laughs) All right. Sorry.
1: It's all good. All right. So, Kate, is there any guidance on how much alcohol use we would typically use to classify someone as at risk for alcohol use disorder? Yeah, so the
2: NIAAA, which is the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, let's not even go there about how outdated that acronym is, recommends that men less than 65 years old drink no more than 14 drinks in a week or four drinks in a day. For women and men over 65, it's way less, actually, so no more than seven drinks in a week or three in a day.
1: All right, so it sounds like there's two buckets of limits a weekly limit, and a daily limit based on the sex and age.
0: Right. 14-4 for men less than 65 and 7-3 for women and men over 65. 14-4 and 7-3. For some reason that's always stuck in my head because 14-4 is 10 and 7 plus 3 is also 10. It just kind of makes sense.
1: All right. Honestly, I would love to use this as an opportunity to make fun of you, Marty, but I can't cuz I also use these weird associations to remember things. So I get it. 14473 plain and simple.
2: Yeah, I usually hate those weird number tricks, but that one's actually pretty straightforward. I've actually thought to myself, where do these numbers come from? And despite going through quite a rabbit hole of papers, it's still not actually very clear and kind of arbitrary. For example, almost every country's health institute has a slightly different recommendation. For example, the British guidelines don't even distinguish between men and women.
0: Yeah. Okay. so the point is, we couldn't figure this out. And if anyone does have any insight onto the genesis of these numbers, please tweet at us. uh uh, the answer. Remember, we are at Core I Am Podcast. Whoop whoop. Yes,
1: <laughs> love Med Twitter. Okay, so to recap, the terms alcohol abuse and dependence have been replaced by this idea of alcohol use disorder, which is basically a problematic pattern of alcohol use leading to clinically significant impairment or distress. And even more broadly, we have the concept of unhealthy alcohol use, which encompasses a broad spectrum of drinking patterns that goes even beyond alcohol use disorder, including things like binge drinking.
0: And for those of us who like numbers, red flags for high-risk drinking translates roughly to more than four drinks a day for men or more than three drinks a day for women, and 14 in a week for men and seven in a week for women. Just remember, 14-4 and 7-3.
1: All right. Excellent. So now we have the terms clear and we're talking the same language. Let's start with a case. So we have a relatively healthy 54-year-old female who's new to our clinic. She wants an annual checkup. No complaints, just wants to get checked out.
0: Oh, I love these visits, right? You're like, colo, mammo, pap, see you next year. Right, guys?
1: (laughs) Oh, sorry,
2: Marty. Not so fast. I wish it was that easy. This is an alcohol use podcast, so you're not going to get away with that. Um, In addition to all those tremendously important things you just mentioned, the United States Preventive Services Task Force, or the USPSTF, has recommended that all adults in primary care be screened for unhealthy alcohol
1: use. Yep, alcohol is the third leading cause of preventable death in the U.S. Pretty big deal. And just one of the reasons why we should be screening for alcohol use in all our intake visits.
0: Yeah, the fact is that studies that have looked at targeted screening find that Shocker, physicians are pretty bad at predicting which patients have unhealthy alcohol use. This is particularly true for patients with moderate-risk use. These are the patients who don't come with lots of these obvious symptoms of heavy drinking.
2: And moderate-risk drinkers are also the patients who are most likely to change their behavior.
1: Yeah, so with that being said, the question really needs to be, how are we going to go about screening in our clinic visits? Do you just say, do you drink?
0: Ooh.
2: Or even better, when someone asks, do you smoke, drink, or do drugs all in one shot, like word vomit?
0: Ugh.
1: Or worse, you
0: don't drink, do you? Ah, my goodness, there has got to be a better way.
1: (laughs) Right. And only for the patient to answer back, saying, not much, or, oh, just socially. And that gets brushed away, usually. But here's the thing, if we don't delve deeper into the actual details, we might be missing a huge opportunity to do some patient education and prevention.
0: Okay, so can we please go through some validated tools for screening?
1: Right. Then the trap that most people fall into is only asking the CAGE questions.
0: Oh, the CAGE questions. I feel guilty just asking those tired old questions. I
1: know.
2: For some reason, those are the only ones we get taught. And I didn't realize this until I was precepting in residency that that's actually not the best test. Yeah, so the CAGE questions...
0: So cage questions cutting back, annoyed at attention to drinking, guilty about drinking, and the classic eye-opener
2: are actually geared towards detection of alcohol dependence, which means that it was validated to detect not only more severe alcohol use,
1: but using old DSM definitions. So using the cage questions, will likely miss a large number of people who don't show signs of dependency yet. Exactly.
2: So the preferred tool in the primary care setting, again, not necessarily for psychiatry or for people who are already known to have alcohol use disorder, is actually the Audit C tool.
1: Good news, it's just three questions, so even shorter than the cage. The Audit C is useful in that, based on the patient's score, it can help you risk stratify. All right break it down for me. What is does a C stand for? And for that matter, the A and the U and the rest of those letters.
3: <laughs> All yeah. the letters. I
1: got you, Shreya. Um, it was actually
2: adapted from a much longer audit tool, which is the Alcohol Use Disorders Identification Test back in the 1980s. The audit C is the first three questions of the whole tool and refers specifically to consumption, hence the C.
0: Okay, and for the skeptics out there, the audit C has been compared to the full audit and CAGE, and the audit C has found to have favorable test characteristics.
2: And for the super skeptics out there, it's also been validated for white, African American, and Hispanic populations in the U.S.
0: Okay, so let's go over those audit C questions because they're really pretty simple. I'll go through the first one. How often did you have a drink containing alcohol in the last year?
2: The second one is, how many drinks containing alcohol did you have on a typical
1: night when you were drinking? And last, how often did you have six or more drinks on one occasion in the past year?
0: And then you get a score, with three or more for women or four or more for men has a positive screen for unhealthy alcohol use.
1: Exactly. And
2: if that's hard to remember like it is for me, the easiest thing to do is just, you know, have the calculator open on your computer so you don't have to do the math.
0: Okay, so that does sound awesome, but I'll tell you, it would be even more awesome to shorten that three-item screener into a single-question screener.
2: Yep. Well, lucky for you guys, that exists. So if you ask the patient if they sometimes drink beer, wine, or an alcoholic beverage and they say yes, then the most sensitive single-item question to ask for detecting unhealthy alcohol use is, Shreya, drumroll, please.
1: All right. For men, how many times in the last year have you had more than four drinks in a day?
2: Or if you're a woman, how many times in the last year have you had more than three drinks in a day?
0: Love this. So what's a positive result on that single-item screening question?
2: Basically, anything greater than zero days. It has both about an 80% sensitivity and specificity for unhealthy alcohol use.
0: Nice. Okay, so to summarize this question. The USPSTF recommends screening all adults for unhealthy alcohol use. And to screen, we have both a single question option, that's how many times in the last year have you had more than three drinks, if you're a woman, or four drinks, if you're a man, as well as the three-question audit C.
2: And to reiterate, audit C is asking basically a broad gauge of how often you drink, how many drinks you drink in a typical night, and how often you drink six or more drinks in one occasion.
0: So, this is a good opportunity to go back to our patient and discuss why we care about alcohol use, the health implications.
1: Exactly. So, okay, it's a busy day in clinic, and we go back to our relatively healthy 54-year-old female and ask her, hey, in the past year, have you ever had more than three drinks in a day? And she says, yes.
0: Okay. So, we follow that up with how often in the past year have you had more than three drinks in a day? And she says every day. Every day. Wait, Shreya, I can't be reading the script right.
1: Yeah. So unfortunately, she just started a new restaurant and it's been super stressful for her. And she says actually she's been drinking a whole bottle of wine every single night to relieve that stress. She says she feels fine, doesn't have any signs or symptoms of withdrawal, and wants our input. So there I am writing my note as she's talking and start to add ETOH abuse to the problem list and stop myself. Yeah, go, Shreya. Yes. And change that to unhealthy alcohol use.
0: Love it. So our 54-year-old woman is drinking a bottle of wine a day. That comes out to about five glasses of wine, right? So even if she sounds put together, she is definitely at the risky drinking mark because she's having both more than three glasses a day and definitely more than a total of seven drinks a week.
2: Yeah. So props, guys, and calling it unhealthy alcohol use and risky drinking. Without more information about the biopsychosocial impacts, we don't have enough to say whether or not she has alcohol use disorder. So this is where I would spend some time discussing mood, sleep, work, and you know the effects all of this
1: are having on her personal relationships. Right. So this is also a good time to screen her for other health problems she might be having that could be related to her alcohol use, which we might have not picked up on previously.
0: For sure. So let's go back and talk about some of these health impacts that might be affecting her.
1: All right. So we know that alcohol, maybe only second to cigarette smoking, is a single greatest modifiable risk factor for malignancy. Yeah, and the data on breast cancer in
2: particular is super compelling. I read a pretty nice meta-analysis published, I think in 2014 in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, that showed that for each additional standard drink you drink a day, your breast cancer risk is estimated to increase anywhere from 2 to 12%.
1: Wow. Whoa, huge jump there. And while we're talking about cancer, pretty much all of them are associated with alcohol. Basically throughout the GI tract, mouth, throat, larynx, esophagus, colon, and obviously the liver.
0: Wow, that's like, that's like all of the cancers. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the only ones you're missing on the list you just mentioned, Shreya, are like, I don't know, melanoma and thyroid cancer.
1: Well, since you mentioned that, Marty, I looked up both of those and alcohol use is indeed associated with both melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancers. In a dose-dependent relationship. Nice, Kate. Thank you. And interestingly, alcohol use is actually associated with a decreased risk of thyroid cancer. There's been a number of studies about this, but a 2017 meta-analysis pooled the results and it still maintained significance.
2: Yeah, I was actually pretty surprised by this. I'm not sure I would ever recommend alcohol to prevent thyroid cancer, but the association is well described.
0: Wow. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, we're not recommending smoking to prevent ulcerative colitis.
1: No, definitely not recommending that. All right, so we covered alcohol and cancer, but let's get a little bit more primary care here. What are the other issues that might be brewing under the surface? Nice one, Shreya. Nice, Shreya. All
0: right. So, yeah, I think the medical complications of alcohol use are actually pretty well known, right? You have cirrhosis, pancreatitis, ulcers, just to rattle off a few.
2: Totally. I think what I actually find most interesting is that sometimes the complications of alcohol use are actually diagnosed before the alcohol use disorder. So you'll have patients with uncontrolled hypertension, depression, sleep apnea, GERD, peripheral (laughs) neuropathies, all of these things, but the alcohol use itself won't have been identified. And it's super important to do that because a lot of these other medical problems are actually at least partially reversible if you address the alcohol use. Totally.
0: And the other things not to miss are the psychosocial and mental health impacts. So when I think of those, I think about alcohol use causing or exacerbating depression, suicide.
2: Not to mention intimate partner violence, firearm violence, and physician burnout. Yeah. And
0: the other thing to think about that results from alcohol use that people often forget about is weight gain, right? Every other patient in clinic is trying to lose weight, but I think few people realize that that bottle of wine that they're drinking on the weekends is like six or 700 empty calories. And, And if our patient, they're consuming that nightly.
1: Right. And so that was a great talking point to talk to her about. And actually, it was a huge motivating factor. So I'd like to use this to transition real quick to labs. Because to be honest, sometimes it's a lab abnormalities that pop up first and is a red flag for alcohol use.
0: Yeah, that is so true. I can tell you, I do actually sometimes use abnormal LFTs to open up a conversation about diet and alcohol with my patients. The hard numbers can be an effective teaching point. I also think about alcohol-induced macrocytic anemia in the same vein.
1: Right, right. So I actually really like to turn around my screen in clinic and have my patients actually see their lab abnormalities. And oftentimes, these people are feeling okay. They're like, yeah, 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 it's all good. But when they actually see that it's affecting their body in terms of objective labs, that can be a pretty motivating factor too.
2: Yeah, Shreya, I actually also do that in clinic. Although I think it's important to point out that most major medical organizations don't actually recommend using labs for diagnostic purposes. But I agree that they can be helpful in educating your patients and maybe moving your pre-contemplative patients forward.
0: Love it. Okay. So in summary, alcohol causes serious damage, which might be the understatement of the century. Alcohol (laughs) use is associated with tons of malignancies, I guess with the possible exception of thyroid, as well as medical problems literally from the head, like memory impairment, to the toes, like peripheral neuropathy. And don't forget about psychosocial and mental health issues like depression and intimate partner violence. And lab tests can be useful motivators for behavior change, but they're really not recommended for routine diagnosis of unhealthy alcohol use.
1: All right, so back to our case. So after we talk to our patient about the health implications of her alcohol use, she tells me, hey, actually, Doc, I was drinking red wine because I've heard it's good for you, which is true to an extent, right?
0: I definitely have heard that red wine is sometimes useful for hyperlipidemia, but I guess her confusion kind of begs the question, is there a healthy amount of alcohol a person can drink?
2: So this is the famous J-curve conversation.
0: The J-curve?
2: Yeah, the J-curve. So you guys have, you know, burden of disease on the y-axis and amount of alcohol on the x-axis, and there's actually a point where drinking more is associated with better health outcomes than drinking less. What we like to call a little sweet spot. Exactly. So alcohol in, quote, moderate amounts, which is about a drink a day, has been shown to have potential cardioprotective effects, as well as protection against the development of type 2 diabetes. Studies have repeatedly shown inverse relationships between this level of drinking and the risk of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. The nurses' study, which is that enormous cohort study on health risks in women, is a great example of this. Yeah,
0: there's also a 2015 JAMA meta-analysis about alcohol use that showed that this relationship basically set the bottom of the curve at two drinks per day in women and four drinks per day in men. So at this level, there was actually an overall lower mortality compared with patients who had zero consumption of alcohol.
2: Yeah, I read that article. Um, And it's actually the J-curve that explains why the recommendations for alcohol use are different for men and women.
1: What? Okay, so that's pretty cool, because I've always wondered why the recommendations are different for women and men.
2: For women, the benefits of alcohol seem to disappear at lower quantities of consumption. Basically, the J-curve is left-shifted. There have been a number of theories put forward about sort of the physiologic mechanisms behind the male-female difference, fat distribution in the body, the amount of digestive enzymes, you know, even the role of the
1: menstrual cycle, of course, but none have been definitively proven. Right. So, Marty, Kate, you know, all those studies sound great, but this can be pretty confusing for our patients. And we have to take this with a grain of salt. Most of these studies are observational and based on population health data.
2: Yeah, that's a great point, Shreya. It's so important to differentiate between population level and individual level data. While on a population level, sure, these studies show associations, but in no way on an individual level would I think to counsel my patients to go drink alcohol based on this.
1: Right. I haven't seen anyone routinely recommend a patient engaging in this quote-unquote healthy alcohol use. And we're going to have a whole other podcast on actually treating and counseling patients with alcohol use disorder, which we'll discuss more explicitly.
2: Yeah, podcast part two. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also important here to say that counseling for patients with alcohol use disorder is different from educating patients on on unhealthy alcohol use. And just a pitch for the next section, there have been some positive developments in counseling around risky alcohol use and alcohol use disorder called brief interventions, which I will save for our next podcast.
0: Very cool. Okay, so in summary, large observational studies do show this J-curve relationship with alcohol consumption that show that low levels of alcohol use may actually have beneficial cardiovascular outcomes. However, most professionals don't recommend counseling around the J-curve in favor of counseling around moderation in drinking.
1: All right. And with that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Jennifer McNeely, who is an associate professor at NYU School of Medicine, who specializes and does incredible research in addiction medicine.
3: So it's really hard for us to predict as clinicians who is likely to screen positive for unhealthy alcohol use, even though we're pretty good at detecting the really severe cases. Screening is meant to identify patients with risky use as well. So the recommendations in the guidelines are to screen all adult patients, so 18 years and older, for unhealthy alcohol use in primary care settings. So what should we use to screen them? There is a lot of screening tools out there. My favorite ones are the shortest and easiest to use in primary care that are also very sensitive and specific. So one really easy approach is the single-item screening question for alcohol. If you want to get a little bit more information about what the level of severity of the alcohol use is, then you need a few more questions. One option is the audit C. That's just three questions and the score when you apply cutoffs will tell you if a patient has low risk, medium risk, or high risk use. What is maybe most important, in addition to the question itself, is how you screen. So self-administered screening, uh, having patients fill out a piece of paper or answer questions on a computer, generates much better quality screening because patients are more comfortable. The questions don't get distorted by the way that staff might be asking them or changing the wording. And it's really efficient for primary care. You can do it in the waiting room or even before the patient comes into clinic. Pearl two is what is the definition of alcohol use disorder and what's the difference between unhealthy alcohol use and alcohol use disorder? So unhealthy alcohol use is the full spectrum of unhealthy use. So it includes alcohol use disorder, but you know, those with alcohol use disorder, which are the most severe group, are really a small fraction of the population who will screen positive for unhealthy alcohol use. So alcohol use disorder is defined by the DSM criteria, and that will tell you someone who has an alcohol use disorder really needs fairly intensive treatment and may need medication to reduce or to stop drinking. But for the unhealthy alcohol use that's more in the moderate risk range, they can be expected to respond well to really brief counseling interventions like you can do right in your primary care clinic. Pearl three, the consequences of unhealthy alcohol use can be multiple. It really depends on the patient, on their comorbidities, and how they're using alcohol. I think we often, as clinicians, go straight to thinking about the most severe cases of patients with advanced cirrhosis or alcoholic pancreatitis, because those are the dramatic cases that we see in the hospital. But really, what's much more common is uncontrolled hypertension, where you're not quite sure why the patient isn't responding to medication. If you probe just a little bit, oftentimes uh, alcohol is, is the underlying factor there. You know, symptoms of depression and insomnia are common among people with unhealthy alcohol use. Also may be present in people who don't have unhealthy alcohol use, but the alcohol for many patients is playing a role in these really common conditions. And the other thing to remember is that if you're talking about unhealthy use, it's not always just uh, physical consequences. It may be the way that alcohol is affecting their functioning, their work. Maybe they're not at their best when they show up for work in the morning or affecting their social relationships. So the thing uh, that you want to focus on when you're talking to your patients about it all right, first, anything that you're able to identify that's a clear link to that individual's health um, is something to include in your counseling, but even more so to talk to, ask the patient how it's affecting them and talk about that and problems that they may have identified related to their alcohol use, because that will help to motivate them to change it. And finally, pearl 4 is... So is any alcohol use healthy? Should we be recommending alcohol for patients for their cardiovascular protection or other reasons? So here, the evidence is really murky. There are some observational studies that maybe suggest that people are healthier who drink in moderation, but truly, that evidence base is weak. And I would say, as a provider... If a patient isn't drinking, I would never tell them to begin drinking for their health. The risk is likely to outweigh the benefit there. And if they want to be healthier, then they should eat a healthier diet or do more exercise. But what we also know is that drinking within the recommended limits is not likely to be harmful or very harmful. And so someone who sticks within the limits, you don't have to recommend abstinence all of the time. But I also wouldn't recommend, you know, drinking as a health promotion activity. All
1: right, that was an excellent recap. Thank you so much. Let's finish up the episode with a throwback pearl from one of our most popular podcasts, episodes seven and eight on chronic hep B.
0: Yeah, these were really fun to do with Dr. Amy Shentang, who has actually since given a talk at the 2018 National ACP meeting on hepatitis B.
1: So happy to see Amy doing some great things. So let's focus on the throwback on screening for hepatocellular carcinoma, or what we'll call HCC, in patients with chronic hepatitis B infection.
2: Yeah, that's a great topic, guys. So to start, we need to figure out which patient groups with chronic hep B get screened for HCC. Right.
0: So this part is actually a little tricky because the answer depends on the patient's ethnicity and age and sex. So African patients with hep B are actually at a higher risk for hepatocellular carcinoma, and so they get screened at diagnosis. Asian men start screening at age 40, and Asian women, we start screening them at age 50.
1: And anyone with a personal or family history of HCC gets screened as well. Okay, and if they don't have that history of HCC, there are currently no recommendations to screen other populations.
0: Great. Okay, so the next question is, how do we screen?
1: All right. So we're going to screen using the ultrasound plus minus a serum alpha-fetoprotein, or AFP. AFP alone is not a good test, but there is some data saying that ultrasound plus AFP is better than the ultrasound alone. And how often are we doing this? Every six months?
0: Perfect. All right. Well, that concludes our podcast for the month. Thanks for listening, everybody.
1: Thanks, guys. This was so much fun. See you next time.
0: All right. And to send us out of here, we have my nieces and nephew, Josh and Clara and Maggie, to send us on our way.
2: Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, please email us at coreimpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at coreimpodcast. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at
0: coreimpodcast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own. And do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions. Do
2: not use the podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own health provider for medical
3: care. See you you next next time. time.